So I would like to um, just reiterate something that <clears throat> Arena said about, you know, if I trip over my pronouns or say things that actually cause pain to someone, um, I would like it very much if you would tell me that. Probably maybe outside the door or wherever feels comfortable for you. I think we're, we really are creating something new that hasn't existed before, a kind of radical inclusivity. And it requires us all to be teachers to each other and learners. So thank you, if you would do that. So I want to talk about this lineage. And um, first, how I came to even ask any questions about it. I came to Buddhism at the end of a 10-year period of, of, of radical women's liberation activism in the streets of San Francisco and the East Bay. And I was, like, really burnt out, and someone took me to my first meditation session, which was Vipassana, and they were teaching me the, the, the method. And I said, oh, this is it. I saw immediately how powerful this would be for me in my life as a guide in my life. I also had the great um, good fortune to have a woman teacher, and that was really important to me at the time. I could not have, I could not have sat with a, with a male teacher. That was Ruth Dennison, who, who will probably weave in and out of this talk. And, um, and also that this happened in a sangha uh, where I would say the majority of people were lesbians. Um, it, Ruth did also, Ruth had mixed sanghas, men and women, but she also, due to the activism and the pressure that lesbians put on her, <laughs> she, she did the first, she led the first women's retreat when there were no men, uh, which seems so ridiculous now because people do that all the time. But at the time, it was a very big thing to do. And Ruth herself is heterosexual and for whatever reason had absolutely no problem with any of us being who we were. She totally welcomed us. Uh, so I was in um, the best of all possible worlds. I'd found this gorgeous, wonderful, powerful practice that was going to lead me into... Uh, compassion and wisdom, and I had found it with a, through a woman teacher and in, in a sangha with with lesbians. Um, but you know, being who I am, I'm a writer, and I I like to find out about things. I thought, okay, this is Buddhism. What is Buddhism? What is this about? I knew, you know, everybody knows about Zen. It comes from Asia, and so forth. But really, what is what is going on in Buddhism? Um, and of course, Ruth had brought us to the, that core teaching that the you know the three marks. She had brought us to the the women's dormitory down at Damadena Desert Vipassana Center, which was Ruth's um, center, and where Arena was teaching last week or so, a couple weeks ago. The women's dormitory was called Duca House. Dukkha means suffering. <laughs> Dukkha is the first noble truth. So the, the women's dormitory was Dukkha House. 
And, and then we, and we proceeded to look into this issue of suffering. And I certainly was suffering a lot at that time, more, I think, than I even knew. And so this totally resonated with me. It was a, it was a teaching about suffering. And then, of course, we were looking at how how everything just completely keeps changing and falling apart and coming together and flowing and you can't hold on to anything and coming to the to the truth of impermanence or anicca, which also seemed true to me and, and powerful. And finally, um, observing this self, this Sandy, who um, walks around in the world pretending to be this, and is really a bringing together of many conditions with no uh, a substantial center. So the insubstantiality of the self, that also became, began to be clear to me. And, um, and then the focus, strong focus on the body. All this was the reason that I arrived here <clears throat> in, in this path, or that I stepped into the path. Um... But as I said, I wanted to find out, okay, what is this path? What is the nature of this path I'm in? And I, so I began to read some books and magazines, and I went to some retreats in other Buddhist centers with other teachers. And uh, what I found was quite disturbing because, in fact, this uh, appeared to be, both in Asia and uh, in the United States, a very male supremacist uh, practice. Uh, or let's say religion, a male supremacist religion, which I must say is like every other world religion, except the few we could name here. Um, so that was disturbing to me. I also looked around in um, in Buddhist centers, and I saw um, very few um, people of color, and I wondered about that. And then it, it seemed to me also that um, you'd, you had to have a certain amount of resources to be able to pursue this path because you had to go to a retreat center and pay for it and so forth. And you had to have free time to do it. Um, So what to do about all these things I was finding out? Uh, It really wasn't okay to me to say to myself, oh, I'm, I'm in a, I'm working, I'm meditating in a tradition that, doesn't allow women to ordain. That was not okay with me. I needed, you know, I'm working in a tradition where men somehow are always at the center. They are the people who, the spokespeople, and so forth. Um, you can see it was it was painful and confusing because on the one hand, I had really found something that I knew I wanted to be part of my life. <clears throat> on the other hand, there were all these problems with it. Um, so I, you know, being who I am and being a writer, I wanted to find out what everybody else thought of this. So I went across the country and I interviewed about 100 women in <clears throat> Buddhist settings and um, did a book called Turning the Wheel, which is out there on the table, which is, uh, the subtitle is American Women Creating the New Buddhism. And I think about that, it was 1988 that that was published, and I think... The people creating the new Buddhism now, it has changed. It's, it's, that next book has to be written, not by me, by somebody. These are the people creating the new Buddhism, who are all writing their own books, I must say. There's so many of them, and you know who they are. 
many of you know who they are. So then I was left with this question, okay, what is the lineage in Buddhism? And uh, I went looking for that. After all, the Buddha lived 2,600 years ago. That's a long time ago in northern India, lots of forests. He and his monks wandered in the forests and went to villages and everybody came out to hear him speak. He always spoke outside. And then they went on. The townspeople fed him. He had a bowl. He had a robe. That was it. Uh, So it was a very different time from now. And it was in Asia. It was in India. Um, So what was going on then with the women? Because in every setting I had been in where a Buddhist teacher was talking, they never ever mentioned any um, women teachers or women's lineage or women who'd been part of the Buddhist group or anything of that kind. It was never mentioned. But I found, um, I found a couple of books. One was written in 1915 and one in 1930. And they were written by British women scholars who decided to look into this. And um, indeed, there had been a, a lineage in, in Buddhism. It was there from the very beginning. And um, their stories actually are available, and you can read them in the, in the Buddhist canon, in the sacred books of the, of the Buddha, in the Pali canon. You have a book called Terigata. And Teri means enlightened elder, and Gata is a song or a verse. And... Um, The tradition was that at that time, when you achieved enlightenment, you composed a song or a poem, and then you sang it. So this is a collection of all the songs uh, composed and sung by these women just after their their awakening, their full awakening, and then they composed the song. And there are also biographies of them. So here's an example of one of the verses. Oh, free indeed... Oh, gloriously free. I'm free from rebirth and from death. All that dragged me back is hurled away. So these women achieved liberation, but but believe me, it was not easy. Uh, There was tremendous struggle involved because think about they're they're in India 2,600 years ago. What are the possibilities for women? The religion that was that was dominant there um, <clears throat> had women really on the level of property. So if you were a woman, you had very limited choices. You could be a wife, you could be a slave, you could be a prostitute. But you could not be um, a Buddhist nun following the, the his path. Um, the Buddha had, he, he was quite a revolutionary in terms, of, in terms of class. He accepted people from every, men actually, from every strata of society. He took into his order and ordained them as monks. <clears throat> but he had not made the step yet to allow women into the lineage. So um, then he was challenged, of course, by a woman. And it was a family member. Uh, when the Buddha was born, he, uh, his mother died a few days afterwards. And his, and his aunt, whose name was Pajapati, uh, Pajapati took on the task of raising the Buddha. So, so she was, you could say, his foster mother. 
And, uh, you know, now we call her Mahavajapati, the great Pajapati, is what she became. But then she was his aunt, and she saw the teachings, she, she resonated with the teachings, she saw the monastic path that could be taken, and she said, I, that's for me, that's my path, I need to do that, I want to do that. And there were many women whom she knew who also wanted to do this, but there was no, no door was open to them. They could not do it. Um, so she she went. She decided to go. I mean, she did have some leverage with him. She had raised him. You know, maybe that would make a difference. So she took her 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 friends, and they all went to visit the Buddha. And they said, "Please, will you create an order of bhikkhunis or nuns so that we can go go forth into the spiritual life and attain and attain liberation?" And he said. Simply, no. So they regrouped. They waited a few days until he was speaking in another place, and they went once again, and they asked him once again, Pajapati asked him once again, will you please, for our sake, we want to pursue a spiritual life. We see that the monks or men are allowed to do it. We want to do it too. Please open the door to us. And he said, no. So, I mean, we could talk about the reasons for that. It all gets complicated, but um, um, they didn't give up. And so they knew that in a couple of days he was speaking in a village a few miles down the road. So they decided what they would do is, um, on the day he was speaking, they, would sh- they shaved their heads, they took off their whatever clothing they had, and they put on robes which were raggedy brown robes, which is what the monks were wearing at the time. And they took off their, sh- their sandals, their shoes, and they walked then all the way to the town. And this was, of course, the first Women's Liberation March in recorded history. <laughs> and no pink pussy hats either. Just <laughs> so they got there, and they thought, this ought to convince uh, him that we're serious. I mean, look at us. And they were, they were uh, noble women who, di- who had, didn't have calluses on their feet. So they were kind of a mess by the time they got there. <laughs> they were sweaty and dirty and their feet hurt. And So they waited till he had finished giving his talk. Now this is the third time. They went up to him and Pajapati said to him, We beg you, please establish an order for bhikkhunis, for nuns. And he said, No. But... Ananda was there. Ananda was his cousin, and Ananda uh, was on the side of, of Pajapati. So Ananda challenged him, and this is what he said to him. Can a woman going forth achieve the same liberation as a man? And the Buddha answered, yes. And once he had been asked that question and made that answer, he had no choice. He had to create an order of of bhikkhunis, or nuns. And that's what he did. And um, that's how the nuns' order started in India. So it it was a struggle from the beginning. It was was pushing against everything in society which said, women are not allowed to do this. Um, So after that, of course, the Buddha ordained numerous women. There were 13 bhikkhunis whom he honored, 
for their exceptional attainment or their abilities. These these names are spoken in the in the in the uh, Pali Canon. These actual names of women are there, which is unusual. You know, in in uh, Zen particularly, there now and there there's a woman who appears in one of the Zen stories. She's usually the innkeeper, or she's the prostitute, or and she never has a name. She appears briefly and says something so brilliant that it wakes up the the monk, and then he he goes off and teaches it. That's. <laughs> but a name is a name, name never comes into this, so this is unusual. Uh, have it done. Um, the, the 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 nuns order, the bhikkhuni order, lasted for a thousand years in India, and people. What happened was the women would would achieve full enlightenment. Uh, people would be drawn to them. They would form schools. They would teach and preach, and the lineage moved down through the, through them. It came originally from the Buddha, but it moved down through them as they teach, as they taught. Um, <clears throat> and it lasted a thousand years. Now you might ask, why did it last only a thousand years? Um, and you know nobody really knows, but speculation scholars have thoughts about this. And the one that sounds the most reasonable is that there was a famine in India, and uh, of course people had almost no food. And the way that the monks and nuns lived was the, the lay people gave them food. So here we are in a situation where the lay people have almost no food, and so who did they decide to give the food to? given the culture at that time, they gave the little bit of food that they could manage to the monks. And the nuns then, the bhikkhunis, had no support from the lay people. They had to disrobe, they had to let their hair grow, they had to put on lay people's clothes and go ahead from there. So the lineage was broken in India. Uh, but it th- it thrived for a thousand years. And in other places it wasn't broken, and that's another story. Uh, one of the things that that was encouraging about it was once the when the Buddha did open the door to them and established the lineage uh, or the order, the lay people supported them as much as they had supported the men. So that was that was helpful to know too. But I want to talk about um, a couple of these individuals and their lives. Their lives of struggle, their lives of suffering, the ways in the ways in which they managed that and and achieved the thing they they became the person they wanted to become, uh, or they understood who they were and insisted on being that. Uh, and this would happen often in in domestic settings because, after all, they were mostly working in the kitchen. And there's this one here, little sturdy, is her name. And she, of course, had a husband, and she she asked him, she told him she knew herself to be a religious person, and she had to go and be a nun. And he said, forget it, you're not going to. So there she was relegated to the kitchen. And one day in the kitchen, while the curry was cooking, a mighty flame of fire shot up and burned all the food with much crackling. She, watching it, made it a basis for rapt meditation on the utter impermanence of all things. And therefore, thereby, she was established in the path. 
And then from then on, she wore no more jewels and ornaments. When her husband asked her the reason, she told him how incapable she felt of living a domestic life. And she had probably changed, so he saw her differently, and he let her go, and she, she joined with the great Pajapati and pursued her path to full liberation. Uh, sometimes it came about through extreme suffering. There's one of, uh, one of these women who's called Patachira, who had children and a husband, and, and, and was, uh, they were traveling in the forest, and a great storm came. It was so bad that her husband said, you know, we can't make it home. I'm going to go build a shelter. I'm going to cut some wood and build a shelter. We'll wait all night, and then we'll, we'll leave. She had a toddler and, a, and an infant. Uh, and so she and the children were waiting for him. He didn't show up, but she went to look for him, and he, there he was. He had been bitten by a snake, and he was dead. So she realized, oh, I have to, it's me. I have to get these children out of here and back to the village and there was a stream there was a stream that was flooding she knew she had to cross it so she told she sat the toddler on the bank and she told him to stay there and she got in the water and carried the baby across and put the baby on the shore on the other side and then she went back to get the little boy and as she went back she looked up and she saw that an eagle was circling a huge eagle Remember, this is the forest. And down the eagle came and picked up the baby and took it away. And she, of course, was so distraught that she began to scream. She was in the middle of the stream. She began to scream. And the, and the toddler got so upset that he got up and started to walk toward the stream. He fell in and drowned. Uh, so Patachar was there, of course, totally, totally devastated. I mean, a, a depth of suffering that's hard to imagine for most of us. And then, but it even got worse because she then she finally made it to the village and she saw smoke coming up from the village. This is where her parents and her siblings lived. And she asked about the smoke and they said, well, uh, this family, um, the, the roof fell in on their house and killed them all and they're now being burned on the funeral pyre. And it was her family. So uh, Patachara did what most of us would do. She, she went mad. She became a lunatic. And she began wandering around. She took her, all her clothes off. She began wandering around. People threw dirt at her. They mistreated her. They, all these things. She was completely gone. And at one point when the Buddha was speaking, she was coming, she was coming toward him. People were pushing her away. Don't let her in. You know, don't let her near the Buddha. He said, no, no, let her approach. And when she came there, um, he looked her in the eyes, and through his own mind power, he went in and he stabilized her mind. He brought her back. And she realized she was standing there with no clothes on, and somebody gave her a robe to wear. And then she begged uh, the Buddha to help her, she told him her story, all that had happened to her. And he, um, <clears throat> he told her about the many previous lifetimes in which she had lost a child. He told her about the thousands and thousands of lifetimes in which people, parents, 
men and women had lost children. He told her about all this suffering that had gone on and that hers was no different from all of that. And that brought her some peace. Um, and in the, in the account of this, it says, the master's words touching the way where no salvation lies. The grief in her became lighter. Lighter to bear. So, you know, the, the path where no salvation lies. You know, there's, this is Pema Chodron saying, turn toward it. Turn toward it. Be in it. Go in it. There's no salvation. Be with it. And that brought her peace. Um, <clears throat> her final, I love her final um, uh, enlightenment because this was just her beginning one. She woke up and he let her take the robes and she went out on the, on the spiritual path. Um, but <clears throat> her final enlightenment was, was um, uh, with, a, with a lamp. She took a lamp in she had been practicing diligently for a long, long time. She took a lamp in at night, and she turned the lamp out. And as the flame went out, she woke up. And she, it was called the nibbana of the little lamp, the nirvana of the little lamp. When the light went out, she, she got that final moment. Now, is to remember that that was when the Buddha was actually a living person in the world having his influence on people. So, it, you know, traditionally they say you could, you, one meeting with the Buddha could wake you up. So, that's to, that's to remember in these stories. <laughs> it, was a, it was a beautiful time. Um, there's a whole series of the, of the gathas, of the verses... Um, with the prostitutes and and women who are, are are extremely extremely identified with their own beauty, and there's a marvelous story where he he's giving a talk and her name is Kema, and Kema is a prostitute and her her friend her John her boyfriend um, wants her to come to hear the Buddha and she she knows not to go she knows there's something. No, I can't go there. I can't go there. Uh, but he insists that she go. So she's watching the Buddha who's sitting up there, and he sees her. He sees her, and of course he, underst- he sees right away what her suffering is, which is that extreme identification with how she looks. And so he conjures up um, a woman next to him, a handmaiden who's, who's fanning him with a, with a, a palm leaf, and she is five times as beautiful as Kema. She's just a gorgeous woman. And <clears throat> in whatever terms they, at that time they, they thought. And as Kema is watching, Kema is saying, oh, I, I can't even compete with it. As she's watching, this woman goes through a full life cycle. Gets older, gets gray hair, starts to wrinkle. Her teeth fall out, she's going down, she's going down, until finally she drops dead. And uh, Kema, <laughs> um, let's hear what she says. <laughs> All right, then Kema, 
because of her ancient resolve, and they had generally had past lives that set them up for this, thought, has such a body as this come to be a wreck? And then she gets it. So will my own body also. And she, she turns around. She becomes a whole different person. She takes the robe. She said when, she, uh, when he had finished talking to her, the Buddha, the Buddha then talked to her about this. When he had finished, she attained arhantship, in other words, full liberation, together with thorough grasp of the, of the norm in form and meaning. And thereafter, she became known for her great insight and was ranked foremost among the exalted ones by the Buddha. Her name is Kema. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's one other woman who, who was a great teacher. Her name is Damadina. And you notice Ruth Dennison's retreat center is called Damadina. She was given the name Damadina. Ruth Dennison was. And she, being rather humble, she said, I can't, I can't live up to this name. <laughs> I'm going to give it to my center instead. But it said that Damadina, for instance, had become a teacher, but she was then challenged by a, a monk who interview, interviewed her with questions on the Dharma. And she answered every question as one might cut a lo- lotus stalk with a knife. She cut through every question he gave her. She cut through to the, to the essence of that. And finally, she referred him to the, to the Buddha, who praised her great wisdom and ranked her foremost among the sisters who could preach. Um, So coming upon these stories, I loved coming upon these stories, and it spoke to me, and I could understand and and identify with these women. And also, uh, I I could see how their struggles had parallels in the kinds of struggles that we have as LGBTQ people, uh, in defining our path, in becoming who we need to and know ourselves to be in a, in a hostile world. They were doing that. Um, and they found their freedom. They managed, they came through. They were strong enough somehow to do that. So I'm going to just say a few names. I just I said Kema uh, and a few of the others and bring them in. Uh, Muta, great. Would you, have, yeah? Let's speak of Muta, Vimala, Kema, Bada, Dhamma, Patachara, and then Mahapajapati, who started the whole thing. But another thing that I I found really inspiring and important to me was that these were not isolated women uh, just pursuing their path by themselves. They were part of a sangha. They were part of a sangha. They created sanghas. They moved forward and, and, and uh, guided and helped and supported each other in their path. Just as, just as we are <coughs> so much learning how to do in, in Buddhism now. Um, and then, but then I want to mention also, so those are our forebears, but we have people right now who are opening so, so many doors to us, who have been in the last, let's say in the last 50 years in, in this country, um, 
And I'm just going to say some of their names. And they are, um, as I said, some of them are dead now. Some of them are, are alive. Um, Ayakima. Gina Sharp. Maureen Stewart Roshi. Mushim Ikeda Nash. Zenju Earthlin Manual. Tenzin Palmo. Angel Kyodo Williams. And Sharon Salzberg. And we could bring in many more. Arena Weissman. Amana Johnson. Um, so I, um, as I said at the beginning, I think we're, we're, creating, we're creating something new in Buddhism. Um, all of us here together. And, and it's our effort to do this. And it's not easy. If you look around at, at Buddhist centers and, and who's there and who's not there and who's running them and who's, who's in charge and all of that, we know it's not easy to do. It's hard to do. But now there are so many of us who are willing to um, be here with who we are and learn and teach with each other. Thank you. So I would like to lead you in a guided meditation to carry this another step forward. So if you'll get comfortable, if you need to Stand up and shake out. Do that. <clears throat> or get another pillow. Or... Maybe just take a deep breath. Breathing in, breathing out. And closing our eyes, or if you want to keep them open a little bit, however you do this. Arriving once again in this body, in this seated body. Feeling the weight of the body on the chair or on the cushion. And watching the breath in and out. Now I invite you to open your awareness to the ancestors who have been invited to join us in this room. The Terries, the enlightened women of those ancient times, 
and the other women and men who have accompanied us on our spiritual path. And then expanding our awareness, calling in those beings not in the Buddhist path in our lives who have empowered us, who have protected us, who have inspired us in this life and maybe even previous lifetimes. I invite you to let yourself flow in this stream of the people who have influenced you in your life. coming from many sources, perhaps a place on the earth where your people started, Africa, Asia, Europe and the British Isles, North America, South America. Perhaps a family spiritual stream that you stepped into or inherited, Christian or Jewish, Muslim, an African religion, a Native American path, the stream that carried you forward. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.